righteous. What comes to your mind when you consider the word righteous? How do you define righteous? What emotions are attached to that word? Why is the word righteous intriguing for us? The one true God of the universe is a righteous God. And having His righteousness is the only hope for humanity. This morning, we give consideration again to understanding the righteousness of God. Paul wrote the book of Romans in order that we may understand the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. We are considering this idea of God's gospel, and we're understanding the first part of the book explains the priority of the gospel, and now we're into that second section, the heart of the gospel, and we've been there for some weeks now. And we understand that the heart of the gospel explains that God's righteousness is revealed through his anger for sin. God is angry with sin. We understand that God's righteousness reigns with justice and that he, there's no partiality with God. God is, is righteous. God is, is extending his wrath, his anger against all humanity for sin. And we also understand that God's righteousness is received by faith. And this is where we're at now in our study through the book of Romans. If you haven't done so yet, please turn to, in your copy to Romans chapter 3. The majority of the first three chapters is about our sinful ways. Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does a phenomenal job of explaining how sinful we are. We are rotten to the core. We are messed up people. So how can someone be justified in God's sight? How can a person ever hope to stand before God and be just, be righteous, just, and stand before the just judgments of God. It all comes down to the righteousness of God. After all of the bad news from the first three chapters, Paul shifts gears, and in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, but now the righteousness of God is without the law, is manifested, it's shown, it's demonstrated. Now the righteousness of God is made known. That's the hinge that turns the, the, the whole picture. That's the hinge. But now God's righteousness is manifested. This now is referring to that glorious reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ, came into the world, lived, he served, he died, he rose again. And because the, the, the righteousness of God has been made manifest, it's been shown to us, there's hope. Would you please follow along as I read God's word from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference or distinction. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God has put forward to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this, pres- at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that God might be just, and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law or, or by what principle is it excluded? Of works? Nay, but by the, the principle, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the, the, the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 gives us 11 truths about the righteousness of God. We've been looking at them over three Sundays. This is our third Sunday to consider God's righteousness. First, we saw that God's righteousness is independently effective. In other words, God's righteousness is made known to us apart from the law. Secondly, God's righteousness is seen in Scripture. The law and the prophets do bear witness, testify of God's righteousness. Thirdly, we noted that God's righteousness is obtained through faith. It's the means of which God gives us the righteousness of Christ. Fourthly, God's righteousness is available to all. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. God shows no partiality. Number five, God's righteousness is given by grace. It's not by our works. He'll return to that theme in the the verses we look at this morning. Number six, God's righteousness is revealed through redemption in Jesus Christ. And number seven, God's righteousness is purchased by the blood of Christ. We've looked at these seven. This morning we'll note four more truths about God's righteousness that Paul gives us in the, the second part of verse 25 through the remainder of this chapter. Christian, respond to God's righteousness. Don't sit back as a religious robot and just say, oh yes, I'll take in these 11 truths about God's righteousness. It's all good, it's all good and well. No, respond to the righteousness of God. Respond with humility. Respond with worship. Respond with awe. Respond with holy living. Because God is a righteous God. If you're not a Christian, if you've never yet been born again, this morning you're going to hear about what it means to be born again. And what it, what it means for you to have the righteousness of God for yourself. Listen carefully this morning. One pastor put it this way regarding this passage. Justification for sinful mankind was made possible by God's grace through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And it is appropriated to men when they place their trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Friend, your only hope in the face of eternal condemnation, as you look at what you deserve, condemnation, your only hope in the face of eternal condemnation comes through the work of Jesus on the cross. You are called to humbly accept that work 
and to boldly proclaim the news of Jesus. Four major ideas this morning about God's righteousness. It's number eight. The first one is number eight in our list of 11. God's righteousness is demonstrated at the cross. Look at verse 25 again. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. We covered that last week. Here it is. To declare, to demonstrate his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The idea of declare that, that Paul uses here, it means to demonstrate, to show, to prove. Tomorrow is Tara and my uh, wedding anniversary. It's 24 years since we've been married. And I can look back on that day, December the 14th, 1996. I know, some of you weren't born then. Okay, fine. I can look back on that day uh, of December 14th, 1996, and our wedding day, and I can look back and say that we declared, we demonstrated on that day our commitment to one another. God has demonstrated. God has declared His righteousness. Where did He do this? He did this chiefly at the cross. What happened at the cross proved the righteousness of God. Paul gives two primary ways that God's righteousness was demonstrated at the cross. Mercy and justice. Mercy to pass over former sins. And justice to, to justify freely or fairly. First of all, we see that God's righteousness is demonstrated at the cross because he has mercy to pass over. We saw it in verse number 20, 25. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, here it is, through the forbearance of God. God put forward Jesus Christ because he had passed over former sins. Now, I just want to give you a heads up. There's a translation issue in verse number 25. Our King James says, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. That's fine. The word remission is a, is a, here is a unique Greek word. It's the only time it's, the, it's used in the New Testament, right here. It's, it's, it's a word, that word remission, we often e equate with forgiveness of sins, and that's an accurate understanding of remission. So very often, uh, when the men are praying at, at, at the Lord's table, when we're, we're celebrating uh, the, the Lord's table, uh, we'll say we know that there's no forgiveness without the, well, there's no remission of sins without the blood. There's no forgiveness of sins without the blood. But here it's a unique word. Paul is not talking about full and final forgiveness. Rather, he's talking about God choosing to not prosecute immediately. So God passed over. He, in his divine for forbearance, he passed over former sins. Other translations say, in his divine forbearance, God has passed over former sins. Well, what does that mean? I mean, how does God pass over former sins? What does that forbearance mean? It means self-restraint. How can God restrain himself about sin? Wouldn't that go against God's holiness, you might ask? Yes. In fact, it could if it wasn't dealt with eventually. What, when Paul says that God passed over former sins, it's talking about sins that were formerly committed at a different time. So what God demonstrated at the cross is that he had restrained himself from punishing the sins of Old Testament saints. He had not dealt with in a final way. He had not dealt with in a final way the sins of, of Adam and of, and of Ruth and of David and Isaiah. 
We see this in the garden, right? God delayed the punishment. Sure, they were expelled from the garden, but God told them that there would be someone who would come who would bear the punishment, their punishment for their sin in a final way. Hebrews 9.15 speaks of it. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In the Old Testament, there is no provision for dealing with sins in a final way. The Old Testament system of sacrifices it pointed forward to an event that would deal with sin completely, finally. Old Testament saints were indeed forgiven for their sins because their sacrifices looked ahead to that one sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. Forgiveness comes through Jesus. That's what Paul is teaching in the second part of verse 25. For century after century, God held back his wrath. What do we call that? We call that mercy. God is restraining. He's forbearing. He passed over former sins. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And now he unleashed all of his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. God is fully righteous. He hates sin. And he has promised to punish sin. And that happened at the cross. God withheld through the Old Testament. He withheld, he withheld, and he withheld. And then he withheld no longer. He poured out all of his anger on his son Jesus at the cross. Jesus was whipped without mercy. There was no mercy when the crown of thorns was crushed into his head. When he cried out in loneliness, there was silence in return. He had been forsaken by his father. Jesus experienced no mercy on that day. The pain and the agony and the suffering, it continued until God's anger for our sin was completely satisfied. Jesus paid it all. The one who experienced no mercy from God the Father on that day was the very means for God the Father to show mercy to all of those Old Testament saints. God put Christ forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice, so that God could withhold his anger for sin. But it's not just the Old Testament saints that are experiencing that, that, that have experienced that, that mercy, that forbearance. We New Testament saints experience that withholding also because Jesus already died, because Jesus has already absorbed all of God's anger for our sin. God now withholds for us the punishment that we deserve. God has, has that forbearance for us because of our sins. Can we think about it like this? God is actively forbearing on our behalf. Just as he withheld final punishment for the sins of Old Testament saints until Jesus came and Jesus made that payment, God now withholds punishment on us for our sins because of Jesus' payments. So, God is a merciful God all of the time. Whether you're a child of the Old Covenants or a child of the New Covenants, 
you experience God's forbearance. He's withholding. Christian, you don't need to fear God's anger for your sin. He's withholding. Christian, God is not angry with you. Because God unleashed His anger for your sin on His Son, Jesus, you can be assured that He will not unleash His anger on you. Brothers and sisters, we who are in Christ have been moved from darkness into His marvelous light. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Your future is not in question. It's been guaranteed, it's been secured by God putting forth His Son Jesus as a propitiation for your sins. Therefore, God is able to pass over. He's able to, to withhold His anger against you because it's already been put on His Son, Jesus. The hope for your future does not rest on your ability to not anger God because you have gone astray. Rather, the hope for your future rests with Christ's ability to appease the anger of God for your sins. And he's already done that. So don't, Christian, don't be paralyzed by fear of God's anger. Instead of living with fear, live with thanksgiving for his mercy. Because you have experienced God's mercy, be a merciful Christian to others. Because you have experienced God's mercy, show mercy to other people. Withhold your anger. Withhold your judgment. Withhold your wrath towards others because that's exactly how God has treated you. A second aspect of God's righteousness demonstrated at the cross is that God is, is just to justify. Verse 26, so we said that, that God is, has, has been forbearing, passing over former sins. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. That's why He has done this, to declare His righteousness. Here is the second part, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believes in Jesus. That means that the transaction of God giving us His righteousness is a fair transaction. God is a just God. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is God. God does not negotiate his righteousness in order to help us out. He remains righteous. He remains just. God doesn't stop being holy in order to save us. Sin must be punished. Either the sinner will pay for his sin for all of eternity in hell, or the punishment will be paid by Jesus on the cross. So how is God just to give sinners his righteousness? How could that be? There had to be a, the way for God to keep being holy and also to be merciful. And the only way was for God to put his son forward as, as a propitiation, as a sacrifice for sins that were not his. It's not a, a shady deal in the least. On the contrary, God is just to do so. The only way that God could hold back his anger on Old Testament saints was, this, was if he did punish sin. And that happens at the cross and for New Testament saints as well. The sins of his children are forgiven because of what happened at the cross. 
So God's way of, of, of justly making forgiveness possible is, is declared, it's demonstrated at the cross. It is just because he punished the sins of ungodly sinners by having Jesus take that punishment. Hey kids, have you ever said something like this? Well, that's not fair. All the parents snickered. You're right. There's a lot of unfair things in our world. There's a lot of injustice in our world. And we see it often, and it's kind of getting old, isn't it? Adults take hope. God is always just. He cannot be otherwise. There is no guarantee in regards to just, justice on this earth as far as how, it, how soon it will be meted out, but God is just, and justice will prevail. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that God's righteousness is demonstrated at the cross, both in God's mercy and in God's justice. God is just, so no sin will go unpunished. And God is merciful, so no sin is beyond forgiveness. God is righteous, and He offers that righteousness to us fairly because He punished Jesus for sin. That is how God can both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the question. How will you respond to the mercy and the justice of God? Will your increased awareness increase your thanksgiving? Will you stand back in awe and worship? Will you share the good news with others? You see, your only hope, my only hope, as in the face of eternal condemnation, comes through the work of Jesus at the cross. You were called to humbly accept and proclaim that good news. God's righteousness is demonstrated at the cross. Number nine, God's righteousness is the excluder of boasting. Look at verse 27 and 28. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? By what principle? The principle of works? No. But by the principle of the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. God's righteousness is the excluder of boasting. I have a small secret to share with you this morning. I've never made one of those gingerbread houses. You know those things that you guys put together and put all over social media like they look so good? Okay, they look great. Okay, don't be offended. I've never put one of those together and, and, and decorated one of those. I've never done that. If I had, I would have been terrible at doing it. I'm not, any, I'm not good at that kind of thing. But what if my crafty daughter made up a great-looking gingerbread house for me? In fact, it was so good, and the details were so precise, that I entered it into the annual Mannheim Township Gingerbread House Contest. I don't think there is such a thing, but let's just say that I, I did that. And as the judges were going past the gingerbread houses, they looked at mine, and it was, it was far better than all the others. And, and they, as they hung the, the blue ribbon across the... Uh, the chimney, are chimneys on gingerbread houses? They, 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 they tacked it on there somehow, however they would do, because Mannheim Township would do it right. I, I'm sure of that. As they did that, and I just stood by looking at it thinking, yeah. And then I started talking about, hey, isn't my gingerbread house so awesome? Haven't I created this really nice, wow, it's a it's award-winning gingerbread house. Look at what I have done. It would make no sense, would it? It was not my work. Why could I brag? Why should I boast in something that I have not done? 
Paul uses this word boasting quite a bit in his writings. He also uses the word glorying. Paul knew that the, what the Jewish mindset was. He was a Jew. The Jewish people were prejudiced and, 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 and religious people, and they thought their moral standards made them better than everyone else. Kind of like the story that Jesus told in, in Luke 18 about the, the publican and the Pharisee. God's righteousness, Paul says, excludes all possibility for man to boast. Why? Well, there's two sides of the same coin to the answer. First, we cannot boast about having God's righteousness since justification is by faith, verse 28. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. So precisely because salvation is found in the cross of Christ, humanity has no room for boasting. We didn't do it. We are not justified because of our faith. We're justified through faith in Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones succinctly and beautifully put it this way. You must never divorce faith from its object. You must never divorce faith from its object. Our hope is not found in our faith. Our hope is found in Jesus where we place our faith. We can't boast because we know that we haven't been justified. Uh, We haven't justified ourselves Rather, we're believing in Jesus and what he has done in order that we may be justified. Then the flip side of that same coin is that boasting in in God's righteousness is excluded because justification is not by works. This is an often repeated theme thus far in Romans. God's righteousness is, is not given to any human being based on what the human being does, how we live. God doesn't operate that way. Verse 24 says plainly that, that justification is God's declaration, uh, 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 declaring us righteous, declaring us just. It's freely given by His grace. So God makes this declaration even though we are undeserving of it. We can't earn it from Him. We can't persuade Him or in any way obtain His righteousness for ourselves. It's by grace, not by works. Therefore, in every way, shape, and form, boasting is excluded. Friend, if you are proud that you believe, you don't really believe. That's not the gospel. How in the world could you possibly boast? We didn't keep the law. We didn't hang on the cross. We didn't appease God's anger. Jesus did all of that. Boasting is excluded. Let us not fall into the trap of thinking that because we are God's children, that we've accomplished something. Let us be reminded again on this Lord's Day that it's all by God's grace. Our only hope in the face of eternal condemnation comes through the work of Jesus at the cross. We are called to humbly accept that work and to boldly proclaim the good news of Christ. God's righteousness is demonstrated at the cross God's righteousness is the excluder of boasting. Number 10 in our list of 11, God's righteousness is impartial in its application. Look at verse 29 with me. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, seeing he is one God which shall justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. For the Jewish people, Fundamental to them was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. They were dedicated to one God. 
Ironically, even though the Jewish people were monotheistic, they did not believe that Gentiles were within the realm of God. In other words, they didn't believe, they didn't hold to the fact that Gentiles were under the domain of God. That somehow they had the inside track. The Jews viewed Gentiles as being outside of God's domain. Isn't that what we read of in Jonah this morning? Isn't that Jonah's mindset? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he believed that he would be successful as a witness for God. Jonah didn't really want the people to repent. Jews believed that they had the inside track as God's favored people. Paul confronts that attitude here in verse, with his rhetorical question in verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? No. He's of the Gentiles also. He says, is, is, he, is he just the God of Jews? No, he's, he's the God of Gentiles. He's, he's the God of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul wrote the church at Ephesus the same message, the same theme, the same teaching in chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember at one time, you, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh with hands. Remember that at that time you were separ separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and, and by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near, Gentiles and Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The cross has, been broken down, has broken down the, the, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Paul says there's one God. There's only one way of salvation. The Jews found this truth to be a stumbling block. There are not many ways, my friends, to arrive at God. There are not multiple paths that lead to eternal life in heaven. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There are people today who also trip over this idea that the gospel is for all people. Friend, do not pass by the invitation of God to you through this passage. The righteousness of God is available to you. Don't dismiss this invitation away as, as unnecessary. Go back and read the first half of chapter 3 and, and, and how we all need God's righteousness. Don't dismiss away this invitation as, as unavailable to you because of your gross sin. Paul tells you plainly, it is available to all. There is no distinction for all have fallen short of God's glory. Your only hope is to have God's righteousness for yourself. He will justify you. He will declare you to be righteous, giving you his righteousness because you trust in Jesus' atoning work for you. I invite you to trust. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, I invite you to talk with us after the service. We can show you from God's word what it means to be born again.
Christian, for us, the application of, this, of, of God's righteousness in an impartial way means something significant. It means that we must never practice even a hint of partiality in our evangelism. We pray for the Real Malayu people of Indonesia. We pray for Chileans, for Peruvians, for the people of Spain and Nova Scotia and Jewish people. We pray that they will have for themselves God's righteousness. All of them are in need of it. None of them are deserving of it. Just like all of us are in need of it. And none of us are deserving of it. I want to challenge us this morning. As we get ready to come to an end of a calendar year, as we look forward to 2021, as we really look forward to 2021 and being done with 2020, I want to challenge you individually, and I want to challenge us corporately as a congregation to ask God to renew your vision. Ask God to renew our vision as a church family and as individuals. In other words, ask God to, to renew and to cultivate your hearts for the nations. For people that look differently than you look. For people who live much differently than the way you live. For people of different ethnicities, of different social economic backgrounds. Let's ask God to cultivate in us, to, to renew our mind, to give us a new vision for the nations. This is what God has told us. He is, the, he is the one true God. He is the God of Jews and of Gentiles. God's righteousness is demonstrated at the cross. God's righteousness is the excluder of boasting. God's righteousness is impartial in its application. And number 11, God's righteousness is the establisher of the law. Verse 31 says, do we then make void the law? Do we ignore the law? Through faith, because of this faith, God forbid. Instead, or on the contrary, we establish the law. This is Paul's classic throwing out the baby with the bathwater comments. So is this, all, this whole law thing uh, unnecessary? Do we, just, do we just pay no attention to it? No, Paul says. Paul wants us to understand that the gospel of Jesus does not replace the law because the law was never intended to be a means of eternal salvation. The law was not a way to provide salvation. So just because we have faith in Jesus doesn't mean we get rid of the law. They aren't equivalents. So that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How do we establish the law, as the end of verse, chapter 3 says? This doesn't mean that because of our faith in Jesus, we are now enabled to go live out the law, to fulfill the law, to, to, to live a life, a Christian life, by keeping the law of God perfectly. It doesn't mean that. Paul means something differently entirely. God's declaring a sinner to be righteous honors the law. It's consistent with the law. It gives testimony of the value of the law. Didn't we read, don't we read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot, not a tittle will, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus established the law through his obedience, his perfect obedience to the, the law was necessary for God's righteousness to be made available for us. So justification by grace through faith, it confirms that the law is, is so high and holy that we sinners could never fulfill it. Justification by grace through faith confirms the law by showing 
that the punishment of sinners by death as required by the law has been accomplished in Christ. Jesus' bloody sacrifice establishes the Old Testament law that teaches without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Justification by grace through faith, it confirms the law by showing that it is on the basis of true righteousness and exact fulfillment of the law that we are justified. So Paul began in chapter 1, verse number 18, and he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he walks through chapter 2, and he explains to us how we are, are sinful in every way and, and, and how, we, how we are rotten to the core. And he comes to chapter 3, and he says, there's not even one righteous. Not, no, not even one. That's how it, that's it was written in the Old Testament. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. Their, 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 their mouths are like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They're in their paths are, are ruin and misery. There's, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's us. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been made known. It has been made manifest. It has been shown to us. God's righteousness has been shown to us in Jesus God's righteousness is, is independently effective. It comes apart from our works. It's seen, it's testified in the Old Testament, in the, in the Law and the Prophets. It's, it comes to us through faith. It's available for all. There's no distinction. It's given by God's grace. It's realized through the work of Jesus at the cross. It's been purchased by his blood. It's, it's demonstrated perfectly in God's mercy and in God's justice. It excludes all kinds of boasting that we could, that we could make a claim to. It's an impartial in its, in, in its application. And it's the establisher. It's the confirmation of the law. Christian, this is the righteousness that is your only hope. This is the righteousness that you needed, that I needed. This is the righteousness that we have because we are Christians. This is the righteousness that supplies us with eternal life, that guarantees our eternal life. How we respond to it. We respond with gratitude and worship. We respond with a spirit of humility. We respond with tears and just say, God, how could you do this to me? God, how kind you have been. God, you've made yourself known to me. You've given me this, what I can't even fully understand. You've given to me because it's what I fully needed. It's my only hope. We respond with assurance, knowing that if God has done this to his son, he's no longer angry with you for your own sin. We respond with holy living, recognizing that God has done this mighty work. And so you'll say, God, out of thanksgiving to you, I will walk in accordance with your word. I will attempt to love you with all my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind. I will attempt to love my neighbor as myself. And when I fail, I will come running to you and, and seek the forgiveness that has been assured to me by the work of Jesus, whom you put forward as a propitiation for these sins. We respond with faithful evangelism. There are people in our community in our neighborhood, there are people throughout Lancaster, there are people in your, in your family, extended family members, that don't know about the righteousness of God that has been made available. May God help us to be faithful in our evangelism. 
May God help us to be men and women who humbly accept and boldly proclaim the good news of God's righteousness coming to man through Jesus Christ, whom God put forward for you and for me. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.